Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Have you ever been asked the question, what would you do with your last day on earth? Maybe it was part of some silly icebreaker before a community group. Maybe it was sparked by a tragic event in the news or in the life of someone that you know. Many of us would have thought back to our best times, our our life's highlight reel, and thought, oh man, if I could relive that moment, that was a great time. Some of us are going to think forward and say, man, what's on my bucket list? What haven't I done yet that I long to do before I leave this place? Well, I doubt that prayer would have been at the top of many people's lists. But what we see in today's text is that it was at the top of Jesus' list. You see, Jesus is preparing for the Garden of Gethsemane and his suffering on the cross, which will follow. Rather than an elaborate meal full of all his favorite uh, comfort foods or rousing out on the town with his best friends, no, Jesus chooses to gather his closest friends, those who have become his mother and his brother and his sisters, as he himself said, and he brings them to the Father in prayer. He could have walked on water, he could have enjoyed another beautiful sunset, but instead he falls to his knees and turns to God. As we continue in this series, Bold Prayers, uh, we look today at an iconic prayer known as the High Priestly Prayer. In the first message in the series, David uh, Harrington, he walked us through Jesus' teaching about how to pray boldly and how to ask audaciously. In the second sermon uh, last week, Brian uh, talked to us about a a prayer, a modeled prayer from the uh, early church when they started to experience opposition and persecution. And so I think it's fitting. We've seen Jesus' teaching. We've seen others model prayer. Let's see how Jesus models prayer. Amen? So we come to this question again. What would you do in your final hours? Now, Jesus' answer is, I would gather those who are nearest and dearest to me. I would communicate to them the most important and essential truths of our faith. And I would bring them to the Father in prayer. So we see our Savior hunkering down. He has just taught his disciples about the life of the Holy Spirit. If you read John's account of Jesus' life and ministry, chapters 14, 15, and 16 are heavily imbued with teaching about the Holy Spirit, the person and the work of the third person of the Trinity, and how he would come. Jesus would leave and return to the Father, but it would be better for his disciples that he go, because then the Father would release to them the Holy Spirit. Then, in chapter 18, we're going to see Jesus transitioning to praying for himself, preparing for the Garden of Gethsemane, but now he turns to the Father in prayer. And he asks of the Father something audacious, something incredible, something mind-blowing, reality-warping, in fact, in its impact. What is this impossibility, this thing that Jesus goes and asks the Father for that has never been asked before in the history of humankind? He asks the Father For unity. Unity. 
Oh, we hear so much about that, Greg. How is that special? Well, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. In verse 23, Jesus says this. He says, I pray that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So let's look at this more closely. Jesus begins this section of the prayer with a reference to returning to the Father. That is verse 13. He's, he reveals that he is aware that these are his final moments. He acknowledges that he is God's agent in the world, a world that is in rebellion against its creator. And in so being the one who issued forth from the Father, who has come from the Father, who is uniquely and singly uh, uh, anointed by the Father to carry a message of God, he is not of the world. He is separate from the world. You see, he originated with God. He was incarnated into flesh. And in this way, he is distinct from this material and earthly realm. In fact, Jesus himself, his consistent testimony about himself is that he is from the Father, that he is um, of the Father, that he is one with the Father, that he hears what the Father is speaking, that he alone understands the mind of God and that he does what he sees the Father doing. You know, the, the other biblical authors testify to this. And in fact, the writer of the uh, letter to the Hebrews, he puts it this way. He says that Jesus Christ was the radiance of the glory of God, the perfect imprint of his nature. Now, if the gravity of this claim doesn't hit you with some force, it doesn't strike you as odd, maybe it's just because you've been around the church long enough that these truths seem second nature. Good for you. But let's remind ourselves that the very reason that Jesus is going to the cross is because he claimed to be the unique representation of God in the earth. The entirety of the um, religious leader's case against him is this man claims to know God, to be the son of God, to be God. He must die for this blasphemy. And so for Jesus to make this claim, to teach it to his disciples and to ask them to take it up, is nothing short of <clears throat> remarkable. Jesus was in very nature God. And devotion to this claim was dangerous and volatile and divisive. Jesus continues in verse 14. He says, he remarks that the world will hate his disciples because of this claim, because of this reality, because they, by receiving this word, that he has given them have now become separate from the world. The world would hate them just as it hated him because they are not of the world just as he is not of the world. Instead, they have become born again. Now, this phrase born again, it actually comes from an earlier part of John's gospel. It probably sounds to some like fancy religious talk and that's okay. Let's not be too deterred. There'll be more fancy religious talk in this prayer. And we'll explain all of it. Back in chapter three, a religious leader comes to Jesus by night to understand what is this word? What is this revelation that you are teaching Jesus? Jesus says to him, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into or see the kingdom of God. 
Now, this phrase is translated born again. In other places, it is translated to be born from above. And this might actually be a more accurate translation. What would it mean to be born from above? Well, we all know every human comes into the world through a physical birth, a birth of the earth, material in its origin. But Jesus states that there is a kind of birth that comes down from heaven, from above, that is not of this world, but issues forth from the Father, the author of life. And it is this birth from above, this second birth that transitions a person from a purely earthly existence into an eternal transcendent or heavenly life. And it is through the receiving and believing of God's own self-disclosure in the person of Jesus that a person, a human, makes this transition. Jesus came as the word of God made flesh, the very mind of God translated into a human form that we could see and touch and hear And it is our response to this revelation that determines, are we of the world or are we not of the world? Jesus continues in this prayer, and he asks God for protection for his disciples from the evil one. So Jesus does not have any problem acknowledging that there is a spiritual enemy. His response to the spiritual enemy is not to ignore him, nor is it to attack him head on, but instead to pray to the Father the omnipotent one, that he would protect his disciples from the evil one. That, in fact, they would be protected from the evil one through being sanctified by the truth. Another fancy spiritual word, sanctify, what does it mean? It's a verb. It means to set something apart or reserve it for a sacred purpose. And so Jesus is stating that this truth, this explanation or a revelation of who God is that only he can bring is the truth that separates or sanctifies and reserves some for God's work. Jesus himself says, I have consecrated myself, just another word for sanctify. I have set myself apart, O God, for your work. And I pray that you would set apart my disciples, those who would receive this word so that they would be reserved for your great work. By receiving and dedicating themselves to Jesus and his revelation as God's fullest revelation, they were also sanctified by the truth. And so there's great news in this text for us. Jesus, in these final moments, with all the fear and trepidation of the cross and his sacrifice looming in his mind, what does he do? He prays for us. Wow. He doesn't just pray for himself or for the disciples that are in front of him. He actually looks into the future and prays for you and for me. That is if we, like his disciples, have received this word that sanctifies. You see, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, for these who are here gathered around me, for these who have walked with me through thick and thin for the last three years, I pray also for those who would believe in me through their word. You see, there is a continual spiritual lineage. Jesus has revealed the Father, the word of God. His disciples have received that word and they have shared it with others and their community has grown and that has been passed on, the revelation of God through the person of Jesus throughout the generations to you. To us, to me. 
<clears throat> and so he prays for all of us. Now, does he pray for comfort and luxury? Well, I wish he did. <laughs> Health and wealth and success? Well, that, that would be pretty nice. Give me some of that. Personal holiness even? Okay, I can get on board with that. That might be good. No, he prays instead this. He prays, I pray that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. This is an incredible statement. I don't even know quite how to explain this, but I'm going to try. That's what I'm here for. We are Trinitarians. This is a theological idea that the nature of God is that he is one God, yet he exists and he reveals himself to us as three separate persons, a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit. Now, we believe that all three persons are fully God, completely divine. No one person is more God than the other, that they exist in perfect harmony. They have a relationship with one another. The Father is over all, and the Son humbly and obediently submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is working, uh, following the Father's command, going out into the world. How that happens, how that works, I'll be honest, I can't fully explain it. But they exist in perfect harmony. No conflict, no disagreement. Always constantly recognizing the beauty and the perfection of the others and enjoying perfect love. It's kind of an incredible thought, actually. Even if I can't quite fit it in my brain. Now, let's hear Jesus' words again from verse 21. That they, that is you and I, May all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, Jesus, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Did you catch that? Jesus' prayer for you, above health, above wealth, above success, above joy in life, is this, that you would be perfectly united with the Father, swept up into this Trinitarian glory to experience union with the Father, to know his perfection and the joy that he has in his Trinitarian experience. And that you and you and you and you, that we would be connected to one another with this same unity that the Father experiences. Now you understand what I mean. An incredible thought. Never in human history has this been asked of God until Jesus asks. No. Perfect union with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Frankly, I don't even know how this is possible. The idea that finite and fallen and selfish and foolish creatures like us, like me, could have any connection to a perfectly unified triune God is in and of itself a miracle. But the fact that then in that unity with God, I could have unity with you that we could see each other and value our difference and enjoy the glory and the beauty of this mosaic. Well, it leaves me speechless. Now listen, I know it sounds lofty, maybe unbelievable, too esoteric to translate into our life, fine, but I'm, I'm not here to tell Jesus how he should pray. Nor am I in the business of telling God what he can and cannot do. 
So I think it's right that we dive into, look into this deeply and try to pull out of it something that could really help us. So let's think about Jesus's early disciples. Jesus had a fairly unorthodox way of recruiting disciples. Uh, I think a typical rabbi of the day would have gone to the nearest Hebrew school and said, give me your best and brightest. Show me the young men who have memorized the Torah, who can recite it uh, at verbatim, who uh, are, are given to acts of good works and uh, to religious uh, outpourings. Not Jesus. No, Jesus walks around the countryside and looks for the dropouts. You know, young men in, in this day who were fishermen, they were fishermen because they weren't good at Torah. They were told, you know what, don't bother studying anymore. You can go and do what your father does. And so Jesus collects this ragtag crew. <clears throat> and uh, in this group are two men that I just can't understand. The first I want to think about today is Simon. Simon the Zealot. And if you don't know much about zealots, then let's suffice to say that Rome was in charge in this time. And the Roman Empire had a history of excellent success squashing rebellions. People would say, we don't really like Rome. And then Rome would rush in and they'd kill everybody, slaughter them all, hang them on crosses along the road. I think we heard about that in a previous sermon. <clears throat> the zealots were religious fanatics, Jews who felt that the only way to fulfill the um, prophecies about the coming Messiah would be to violently overthrow the Roman overlords so that then God can bring in a renewal of the kingdom. Simon was of this ilk. Now, on the other hand, Jesus recruited Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were universally hated in their day. Why? Because they had cooperated with the enemy. They stood amongst the Jewish people collecting taxes on behalf of Rome, selling out their fellow man and woman so that Rome could maintain its power and its hold over them. Now, can you imagine bringing these two guys into the same crew? walking with them daily through the countryside. I mean, getting Simon the Zealot, a violent insurrectionist, together with Matthew the tax collector, a Roman sympathizer, would have been like mixing American revolutionaries and British loyalists. Or, better yet, inviting the Proud Boys to an Antifa rally. Right? Or, dare I say, dare I say, bringing Cardinals fans and Cubs fans into the same room. I, I know, I know, I know. Jesus did it, man. Look, I can't state strongly enough how far apart these two men would have been politically, ideologically, even religiously. Yet, under Jesus, they became not just civil or tolerant or even friendly, but blood brothers. They dedicated their lives to Jesus's mission and Jesus's ideology, so much so that they both died a martyr's death in service of Jesus as the revelation of God. They had laid aside their worldly identifiers to be united under the name of Jesus. In fact, political ideology was not the only challenge for the early Christians. <clears throat> you see, Jesus overcomes the gender gap 
You look at his ministry, you'll see women featured prominently in their service, just right next to men, in a society that was highly patriarchal. He overcomes the education gap. You've got these unschooled high school dropouts serving alongside university-educated professionals. Let's remember, Luke is a doctor. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. In fact, if you look at the church in Galatia, Jesus overcomes the income gap. In that church, there is a one-percenter fashionista, a blue-collar prison guard, and a formerly trafficked teenage girl, the first three converts. The racial, ethnic, and cultural divides of the day stood no chance in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gentiles were welcomed in as equal participants of the Jewish experience of God's favor. Paul describes the attitude of the first century Christians in this way. This comes from Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So not only is there a theological foundation for our unity in the Trinity, there is an historical precedent for unity, radical unity in Jesus' early followers. Now the application to our times, I hope, is very obvious. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. I think it's appropriate we consider unity in a sermon. Now, I, for one, I'm so grateful to live in the legacy of what Dr. King accomplished. His work to unite people across historical, racial, ethnic, political divides um, has borne great fruit in our nation. I'm thankful for the fruit of his labors and the labors of many unnamed freedom fighters. But as we consider his legacy and as we honor his vision of unity, let's remember the true author of the vision of unity, Jesus Christ. You see, even Dr. King's idea of unity pales in comparison to the unity that Jesus Christ prayed for us. Unity to the eternal God that unites us to one another for all eternity, transcends any kind of political unity that we could look for on this earth. Now, Paul, before this section that I just read in Ephesians 4, he actually has this to say. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on to make his statement, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. In this text, Paul gives us a roadmap for how we proceed forward for unity. He says, first, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Then he says, We need humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. And then he says, we need an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I'll put it another way. We need action, attitude, and appetite. Action, attitude, and appetite. Action. Unity is not passive. Jesus lived and died very deliberately 
to set the stage for and accomplish unity. God sent his Holy Spirit to indwell believers and unite them to the Father so that we could be unified. Jesus' disciples abandoned their worldly allegiances to be unified under his truth. Titus 2 puts it this way, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. As we renounce certain things and choose certain things, we reserve ourselves, we sanctify ourselves, our time, our talents, and our treasure for the work of God. Our devotion to God's truth separates us from the world, but it also fuels our devotion to one another. Jesus prays in verse 23, I pray that they may become perfectly one so that the world will know that you have sent me. Our unity is the basis for our witness. How will the world know that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God? Because the church alone has the resources to achieve unity in this world that can overcome every division and show that Jesus Christ truly is the revelation of God. Jesus lived a consecrated life so that he could devote himself to this work, to this truth, and we do the same. And our union with one another displayed practically as we walk together is central to our ability to display God's truth. The world will know that we are Christians by our love. Second, attitude. Here's where the rubber meets the road, right? We actually have to rub shoulders with real people. You know, I used to say things like, I love ministry, but oh, I can't stand the people. I had to repent of that. You see, because people aren't just the context for ministry or the, the tools to help us achieve God's work. They are the work. Jesus didn't pray for the ministry to grow. He prayed for God to grow his people. You see, Jesus didn't come to establish an organization, the church. He came to start a family, the church. Attending to the needs, even the objections of individuals along the way, it's slow and it's messy, but humility, gentleness, and patience, these things will invite others in. You, you so we live in divisive days where people are seeking to win the arguments and show the superiority of their ideology. But see, we don't wanna win arguments against our opponents, whether they're inside or outside the church. No, we want to win our opponents. You know, Napoleon himself says this about Jesus, that it's amazing that Jesus has built this great um, empire, not on war, but on love. Jesus, Jesus alone has the power to not just defeat his enemy, but to convert his enemy. Now this approach won't necessarily earn you points on social media, right? But it will open a door for mutual understanding, for relationship, and for unity. You know, in the midst of battles over vaccine mandates and school curriculum and the uh, Supreme Court's interpretation of the law, we wanna remember which truths did Jesus die for? 
There are many battles to fight, but only a few hills to die on. The Roman occupation was a big deal, a big deal for Simon and for Matthew and for their families and their loved ones, but they recognized that there was a greater battle to fight. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the perfect imprint of his nature, and fighting for that was worth leaving the other battles behind. Last thing I want to mention is appetite. Paul says we should have an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We need to desire it, we need to love it, we need to want it. It won't come naturally, but it will come supernaturally. Maybe today our prayer should be, God, I know that I don't really want this as much as I ought. I've never thought of it this way before. I didn't realize this was such a big deal to you, Jesus. Can you help me? Can you give me a new spiritual appetite so that I'm ready and willing to do the hard work of laying down what I hold dear and picking up what you came for? This unity to reach across the aisle, to love those who disagree with me and to say, we disagree, but Jesus, that we can agree on and that we will serve and pursue. Maybe you need to rethink the way you post on social media or your attitude, judgmental attitudes towards other believers. I believe that Jesus was eager for this unity. He bled and died for this unity. I pray that we would be eager for it as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that today you are at work in us, speaking to us, teaching us. Lord, would you give us a great love for your unity? May you help us to see how good it is, that it is better than anything we could have asked for for ourselves. Lord God, and would you lead us forward in this path for your glory and your name's sake, so that Jesus Christ would be lifted high and would draw all men and women unto himself.